So in Revelation, John sees a cosmic battle in the unseen realm and how it's been playing out on earth as it is in heaven since the very beginning of time and even how it will end. And so with, with time travel and space travel and detailed allusions to the Old Testament and apocalyptic images and symbols all mixed up together, Revelation is a book that some people find a bit freaky sometimes. But I suggest to you, if you were stuck on a desert island and you had to explain the basic rudiments of your faith, you could do a wonderful job from this book and you could do a wonderful job from just this chapter alone. This chapter answers some of the most foundational questions that we have. What is God like? Where does evil come from? Why do good people suffer? Will it ever end? And two questions in particular that I want to look at today. What is it like before the end? And how do we find ourselves on the winning side? There is so much here. So you'll want the Bible open in front of you uh, to chapter 12. If you don't open the Bible, you do the I don't have my Bible open face. And uh, it will put me off a little, but not too much. But it's not your best look. Chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So to work this one out, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 37, where Joseph has a dream with all the exact same images in it, depicting Israel. So put simply, woman equals Israel. Affirming this view, I'm not making it up, Galatians 4 tells us that Paul describes Jerusalem slash Israel not just as a woman, but as a mother in labor. And that's because Eve, all the way back to the garden in the beginning, was promised a child who would rescue them, and Abraham was promised a child who would bless them, and David was promised a child who would rule over them with, it says in verse 5, a rod of iron. A king, but not with a golden scepter, a symbol of authority, but with a rod of iron like a shepherd's club for bashing monsters in the head. It's a strange mix of images, but throughout history, Israel is depicted as a woman waiting for a child to rescue them and bless them and rule and guide. And so... John, in verse 2, when he sees that she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, is showing us the arrival of all of their hope. It's a sort of eternal cosmic glimpse into the moment where heaven and earth collide at the incarnation of their hope. But verse 3, this moment, this image is interrupted, the sign is interrupted by a second sign. Verse 3, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. In Psalm 74 and in Isaiah 27, dragons symbolize the enemies of Israel. Dragon equals enemy of Israel. And I want you to remember what we've looked at in this book so far, that number is highly symbolic in the book. Seven and ten often symbolize completeness. 
Remember, color is highly symbolic. Remember Ben's four horsemen and the different colors. Red is to do with death. Items are highly symbolic. Horns reveal power. And so this is a deadly enemy of unprecedented power. And maybe this deadly and powerful enemy reminds you of one in particular, as it does for John in verse 9. The dragon is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So, simple middle school algebra. Woman equals Israel, child equals Messiah, dragon equals Satan, who with unimaginable power appears when the woman and the child are at their most vulnerable moments. But John says to us, so you've got this sort of clash of cosmic powers and everything the world's been waiting for, about to be smashed and ruined by the dragon. But John says to us, behold. Behold is the Bible's version of that yellow sign with the rude words on it that says, hey, Yin, slow down. All right? Kids play here. Come tear just through this place. You've got to look, slow down, note the detail, keep your eyes peeled. Behold, both Israel and dragon have their crowns. Do you see that? Crowns are highly symbolic things. We looked at that three weeks ago. Remember, three weeks ago, we looked at this. There are two Greek words for crown. The dragon has diadems. These are rulers' crowns, circlets of gold, symbols of power on the dragon's heads. These are things worn by a prince. But the woman has a stephanos, an athlete's crown, a wreath of leaves worn about the head when she had competed in the games and not just competed but won. The dragon has power, but the woman has victory. Though vulnerable, somehow, this woman has already won against a monstrous foe. She's defeated him in some way. Next, the cosmic battle moves down to Earth. So we're jumping around in both time and in space. Uh, if you're trying to understand Revelation and you think you, you can't do it, go and watch a few Quentin Tarantino movies. You know how he does that and he goes back and forth and moves around? This is just the Tarantino book. And it's kind of scary too. Verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Have you ever seen a dragon in a nativity scene? Should be one there. Church has missed it. This is the dragon's trick, of course, to make you forget that he's there. Every nativity scene should have a monster crouching to devour the child. It says so right here. The dragon's intention, in fact, is to take advantage of the incarnation, to take advantage of the most vulnerable moment, to strike because of the killability of the child, and to do so before the child gets too strong. But verse 5. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, this is a little bit strange. If you were telling someone about the basics of the Christian faith, and you began with Eve and the snake and the garden and sin, and then you moved on to the promise of the Messiah, and then to a crouching enemy of unimaginable power right there in the, the birthing suite of the, 
of the stable. Next, you would presumably talk about the flight to Egypt and the slaughter of the innocents. And then you would talk about maybe the boy Jesus turning up at the temple and making the leaders marvel. And then you would talk about his baptism in the Jordan and the falling of the Holy Spirit as he's commissioned for a ministry. You would talk about everything he did, that first miracle at the wedding in Cana and all of the miracles and all of the parables and all of the encounters and all of the healings until you got to Holy Week and the triumphal entry and the Last Supper and the betrayal and the trial and the cross and the death and the resurrection and the falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and then the ascension of Jesus. That's what you would do if you were telling someone the basics of the faith. And yet skipping the entirety of all of the stuff that we spend most of our time talking about in church, the vision moves from the birth of Christ straight to where he is right now, which is in the throne room of heaven itself. Very strange indeed. We know all the main characters, Israel, Messiah, Satan. We know how the story begins, and we know how the story ends with victory against the odds for both the woman and the child. It's a very elaborate depiction of the basics of the Christian faith, but with two critical bits missing. What is it like before the end? And how can we find ourselves on the winning side? So what happened in the gap? That's the, the tension you're supposed to feel here. What happened in the missing bit of the story to flip the script and turn everything around so radically? Let's find out. What is it like before the end? Verse 6. As for the woman, she fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days or in ancient idiom, verse 14, a time and times and half a time. You got it? Has that cleared it all up for you? It sounds odd. But uh, time and times and half a time, or 1,260 days. It's just a way of describing three and a half years. And if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll find the exact phrase appears in Daniel chapter 7. And it refers to a specific time of especially difficult trial near the end. Now, scholars love this stuff. Many of them get bogged down in you know, when the end will begin and when the end will end and how long the end will last from the beginning of the end to the end of the end and how to measure it. I want you to note that in Daniel 7, one feature of this time, it says, is that even the very way that time itself is measured will be messed with in the end. So have an open mind. Three and a half years could mean three and a half years. That is not an unreasonable view. It could just mean a time, an undefined period of time. And it could mean an undefined period of time that culminates, it's all pretty bad, but it culminates in a time of especially difficult three and a half years at the very end of all of that time. The adult forum is where you go to talk about that kind of stuff. Do join us sometime. But I'm trying to do the simple version here in church because uh, it's a sermon, it's a simple version. What is it like before the end? Bad. Really bad. But it won't last forever. Dig a little bit deeper still. 
And you start to see that seven is a symbolic number. Seven is symbolic of completeness. And three and a half, being exactly half of a seven, is therefore incomplete. The end will end in the end. It's bad, but it ends. What else is it like in the end? Well, uh, those of you who are here for our series from Joel will know that we taught through that book through many weeks earlier this year in order to prepare us for reading Revelation at the end of the year as we're doing right now. And uh, as you note here that the woman for three and a half years is in the wilderness, just think back to how much time we spent looking at the wilderness in the book of Joel. And the whole front cover was a wilderness scene, and we talked about it every week, and we did that so that we could read this properly. The wilderness recap was never a destination. It was always a transitional place. For them, then, in the book of Joel, they'd left Egypt, a place of slavery and destitution and death, and they'd moved to the promised land, a place of freedom and abundance and closeness to God and life, but they did so by crossing a wilderness first. The wilderness appears numerous times in Scripture. And every time it appears, it's a time of stripping away. It's a time of, of false gods being removed, of false hopes being dashed and thrown away, and false comforts being purged. The wilderness was a preparatory place, a time of trial, a time of preparation, a time of repentance. So what is it like in the end, in the wilderness? Well, it's difficult. It's like a difficult journey. We will constantly be disappointed in that place. Our experiences will never match up to our hopes. Uh, how many of us research a thing and we save up for a thing and we get excited about the thing and then as soon as we get it, we experience buyer's remorse? It's not quite as good as I hoped. That bicycle is just not quite as shiny. The gear's not quite as smooth. The brake's not quite as powerful as, as we hoped, as we were told in the adverts. I, I preached this at the first sermon with my parents watching and I had to thank them for the bicycle that they bought me. It was very good. Uh, it's just an illustration. But we do this, don't we? Get a new car. You know, oh, I can't wait. Uh, and then it gets a scratch. We get a new job. We get a new home, a new relationship, a vacation, a meal out. And frequently, our expectations are not met and reality disappoints. Why did Panda Express close down? Because the pictures were great and the food minged. It's horrible. People only ate there once. They ran out of population. Oh, we will be disappointed in Panda Express. We'll be disappointed in the wilderness. Sorry, I've missed my notes. We'll feel a sense of agitation and ennui in the wilderness because, of course, it's not our home. Don't settle there. Don't put a sleeping bag out in Panda Express and say, oh, I'm home. You're not. You know, when you travel with the kids in the car and they're little and they get bored, what do they always ask? That's a wilderness question. That's an end times question. To make matters worse, as was the case for Christ in his wilderness, the dragon pursues you in that place. Verse 13 tells us that he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Satanic attack escalates near the end. We know that. 
I'm sure in Israel they feel it right now. And you know what he does, Satan, in verse 9? He deceives. He does to Israel exactly what he did to Eve. He lies. Did God really say that? Did God really say that thing? He slanders. The reason why God said this is because he doesn't have your best interests at heart. God is afraid that you'll become like him. God is not good enough for you. Or, of course, you are not good enough for him. Both ideas, of course, lead to the same thing, which is distance from God. The dragon devours with temptations. Look at what all the other nations have with their other gods. You should be like them. Let me show you an easier way over here. Let me show you what the others have, what your neighbors are doing. He tempts, of course. Go on. Do it. Do it now. And no sooner do we do the thing, but he flips and he says, I can't believe you just did that thing. Look at you. God can't love you now, not after what you've done. I mean, you're in now. There was some comfort in it, some pleasure. You might as well do it again. You've done it twice. That's a pattern. That's who you are. So you might as well do it again. I can't believe you did it three times. There's no hope for you now. He tempts. He condemns. The same serpent who in that first snaky breath encourages to do a thing, flips in a second, and then seeks to judge you for doing it. Except, of course, he is not the judge. That is part of the deception. Only God has the authority to tell you who you are. The enemy does not have a judgment seat. So he cannot judge you. All he can do, verse 10, is to accuse. He's like a crooked prosecutor, not an impartial judge. And all he can do is cook the evidence and slander and lie and accuse. So do not believe him. Now, at this point, you might be asking, why am I saying you? Why am I giving you advice? If I'm just telling the story on a desert island of the basic Christian faith from start to finish, and uh, woman equals Israel, and obviously we're not Israel, why am I reading us into this story all of a sudden? Uh, The answer is because we're in the wilderness too. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's ours. It's the church. We've joined the story of the people of God through Jesus Christ. So right now, if it feels like you're under attack, that is because you are. That's the reason. What is it like before the end? Bad, but it ends, and difficult, but I want to encourage you, if you are in the wilderness right now, and in a sense all of us are, God is not absent. The wilderness, throughout biblical history, was always a place of proximity to God as well. It was in the wilderness, think, where they received the Ten Commandments. It was in the wilderness where bread, manna, rained down from heaven and fed them. It was in the wilderness where a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke led them. And it was in the wilderness where water gushed from a rock to give them 
liquid women, they were thirsty, and they received food when they were hungry. Frequently in the wilderness, they repent and they return to God, and they are closest to God in the wilderness. I found, pastorally speaking, that the times when people are often closest to God are the worst times in their life. When we've just been bereaved, or we've lost a job, or we've confessed an addiction to all of our family, or we've let someone down, or we've been overwhelmed. Uh, Kat and I were going through our calendars yesterday, and we looked at them, and it was just a sea of like colored squares overlapping. And we're like, what have we done? What mugs? Like we pride ourselves on like not doing that. And we did it. And uh, you know, we just went up to my closet and we just prayed together. Uh, because I was like, oh, I know why I filled my calendar. I forgot myself. I thought I was Jesus. I mean, Jesus isn't overwhelmed if his calendar gets full, but I am. And so I just felt the Lord saying, let's do this the easy way, shall we? Why don't we pray? Instead of finding out in three weeks' time the hard way and blowing up and breaking something. We often feel closest to God when we're overwhelmed. That's why he allows it. Uh, we were asked on clergy day, ben, ben and I, we went on a retreat with all the pastors. Um, you know, we say retreat, it was actually extra work. But uh, we were asked to make an inventory of, of all the times in our life. All the pastors in Pittsburgh were asked to make an inventory of all the times in their life when they would felt, felt closest to God and strongest in their faith. And as we sat around a table sharing our stories, we started to see what the bishop had wanted us to see which was that all of the high points in our faith corresponded perfectly with all of the worst times in our life. That's how it is. What is it like before the end? Bad, but it ends. Difficult, yet strangely close to God. One of the most persecuted churches in the world right now is Iran. And if you shared this scripture, Revelation 12, with someone from the Iranian church, they would tell you, we've seen the dragon. We've met him. And yet one organization that works in secret there claims they receive 700 phone calls every day with questions about Jesus. The fastest church, growing church in the world right now is in Iran. The most persecuted church is growing the fastest and the church in the West is disappearing. The good news is that the dragon is not the only thing that pursues you in the wilderness. God does. Verse 6. The wilderness is prepared by God. That is to say, he has a purpose in putting you there, and in it, she, meaning Israel and her children, dot, 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 me and you, will be nourished. Nourished is a really funny word, and maybe as you think wilderness nourishment, you're reminded of the water and the manna, the bread of heaven, raining down, but really in the Greek... It's actually a word to do with raising kids. It means to pamper or to nurture or to suckle or to feed up. It is a word for mother's milk. The mother goes into the wilderness and God goes with her and mothers her. Such a gentle image. And although the dragon pursues, God lifts her up on eagle's wings and rescues her from the flood of the enemy's rage, a powerful image now. Gentleness and power combined. Never get in the way of a mama bear and her cubs. There's that gentle power. 
So what is it like before the end? Simply, it is bad, but it ends. It is difficult, but you can be closer to God. And now for the missing piece of the story. Against the odds, the woman and the child have won. Long before we find out how she got it, she wears a victory crown on her head already. And there's an outburst of praise in verse 10 of the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come already. So how? How do we find ourselves on the winning side? It says in in verse 11, they, meaning Israel and her children, meaning you and me, have conquered Satan, a victory word in the past tense, by the blood of the Lamb. So it turns out the vulnerability of the child was not a tactical mistake, but part of God's plan all along. And I think that the critical bit of the story is missed out at the beginning of Revelation 12 to make you wonder what happened and to make you zoom in on the bit that is most important of all. The monster is defeated by the vulnerability of the hero who achieves the most powerful of victories gently. He gave his life. As he died, he atoned for us with his perfect blood. It's a sacrificial lamb that lays down his life. He was born just like us so that he could die for us. And now with all of our sins transferred onto him, And paid in full, we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Our sins are expiated by the blood of the Lamb, that is to say, wiped away. They are propitiated by the blood of the Lamb, that is to say, blotted up. They are washed away, that is to say that the stain of our sin is essentially removed. And then we are restained with the the stain of his perfection. His glory, his perfection is imputed to us as we are immersed and and bathed in the blood of the Lamb, such that when the Father looks upon us, what he sees is the perfection of his own Son. Therefore, all of it gone, a full new identity brought instantly and perfectly through the blood of the Lamb. No accusation from the dragon can ever land on you. He has no judgment seat from which to judge But even if he had one, he'd be wrong. When the dragon tempts you into believing that God is not good enough for you, you can look at the lamb. And when the dragon tempts you into thinking you are not good enough for God, you can look at the lamb. Leon Morris said, The troubles of the persecuted righteous arise, not because Satan is too strong, but because he is beaten. He is doing all the harm he can while he can, but he will not be able to do this for much longer. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.